what gas stations in town have the best food and which ones don't. And I make it my point to try out the culinary delights at any place I travel to. Well, yesterday we were up in Fresno and we were about to visit my mom. And my mom asked if we could pick her up a milkshake because at the place she's staying, they don't have milkshakes. So she asked if I could pick her up a milkshake on the way there. And we did. And we pulled through the drive-thru at the Tasty Freeze slash Wiener Schnitzel restaurant. And I saw something on the menu. It was chili cheese fries made into a burrito. And it was only $2. So I purchased this chili cheese fries burrito and ate it in the car, you know, on the way to the place there. And, of course, that doesn't do so well for your body. You know, I, I try to talk about being healthy and being strong and things like that. Chili cheese fries burritos will not help you be healthy and strong and are not good for your body. It's junk food. But you know what? I was there in that drive-thru. It was convenient. It was right there. All I had to do was say, add a chili cheese fry burrito to my order, and they would do it. It was cheap. It was only $2, and at the moment, it was at the time, it was fairly easy to eat. You know, I don't recommend them for long-term use. I don't think I'm going to bring them to the next church potluck. But the problem with junk food, the problem with food like that that's easy to buy and, and, and easy to acquire real quick, you know, that's cheap, it's not always good for you. It doesn't help you be healthy. Well, our theme for the year 2020 is about being strong. And junk food will not help you be strong. Spiritual junk food will not help you be spiritually strong. So what we try to do, and my goal with all of our lessons all the time when we get into God's Word is to not serve up junk food. I try to serve up the meat of God's Word. Sometimes that means challenging us in areas that we need to grow. Sometimes it means breaking down a passage that might be difficult to understand. Sometimes it might be calling out certain sins that we have in our lives. Well, what we've been trying to do, we started last week, and we're going to continue this week as we talk about being strong. We're digging into some weightier subjects, some meatier subjects to help us be strong when it comes to understanding what we believe, why we believe what we believe, and maybe contrasting that with the religious landscape of the world. Because the truth of the matter is, it's pretty confusing. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different world religions, of course, and then even when you get into those that that are identifying with Jesus, Christianity itself is very, very divided. If you were to just decide one day, I want to go to a church that follows Jesus, and you go to church after church and find different flavors of you know, Christianity, you might say. I mean, it's, it's, you don't know which one is the one that's good for you, which one's right, which one's teaching truth, which one might not, and why there are different differences. And what we talked about last week was it's okay for us to evaluate, to compare, and to contrast what maybe we've been taught versus Scripture, or maybe what we see in Scripture versus maybe what others interpret from Scripture. And to come to conclusions from the Bible and determine maybe if something is correct or false doesn't mean that we're judgmental. It doesn't mean that we are trying to inflate our own ego. Hopefully none of us believe we have it all figured out. Hopefully as a church, we don't ever think that we have it all figured out and have a monopoly on the truth. But at the same time, it's okay for us to say, you know what, that's wrong. It's okay for us to do that maybe when talking to an individual, trying to help them out of sin. It's okay to do that even in a grander scale when we evaluate maybe religious teaching with the Bible and say, does it line up? We should do that with our own teaching. Just because we've done something for years in the church here doesn't mean that it's right. 
Just because we heard something in sermons our entire life doesn't mean that they're correct. And just because someone else doesn't, doesn't mean that what they're doing is wrong. But what we can do is go to Scripture and hopefully with a humble attitude, a spirit of love, and a spirit of trying to determine truth can look at Scripture and come to some united conclusions. So what I want us to do in this lesson today is I want us to talk about the church kind of as a whole and look at where did the church come from, what is it supposed to be like, and is there anything that we can take from and learn from the origins of the church, maybe apply it to our lives, and also maybe compare and contrast that with other religious systems and seeing if they line up with what the Bible teaches about the church. Now, as we talk about the church, it really begins way back in the beginning of time. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God made man. He placed man in paradise there in the garden. And that God expected man, you know, to dwell there. That's, that was his plan. But because of sin, you know, we remember that the sin happened. Eve took of the fruit that she wasn't supposed to eat from, gave it to her husband also, and he ate Adam, and they both sinned. By the way, we have no proof that it's an apple. You just can't ever find pictures of the first sin that have a mango or a pear. It's always an apple. So they ate of the fruit they weren't supposed to eat from, and there was a sin, and by proxy then sin entered into humanity. And from then on out, you have the story in Scripture of God redeeming humanity. As you go on in the Bible, you'll find that God gives a promise to one of his followers by the name of Abraham. And he told Abraham that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And what the Bible does kind of at that moment onward is it follows the storyline of that family. The family of Abraham, which later becomes the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Most of the Old Testament is about that family line because God told Abraham that, hey, one of your descendants is going to bless all the nations. All the nations are going to, of the earth are going to be blessed through you, through that family line. Jesus would ultimately come from that family line. But because of that, you also have a division that takes place in Scripture. You have a separation now between the Jews, which were the family of Abraham, and the Gentiles, which were everybody else. Now, the Jews had a particular law that they were under. We have the Old Testament law that they followed, you know, um, writings of Moses and so on, that they followed and had to obey like feasts and, and different sacrifices and going to the temple and things like that. That was their particular law. Then you had the Gentiles. And God had requirements on the Gentiles. Uh, we read in Romans chapter 2 that they were a law unto themselves. We just don't have a lot of details about what that consisted of. But you have a separation between Jew and Gentile. But throughout the Old Testament, you have many prophecies that talk about that one day the Messiah was going to come. And he was going to bring unity between all peoples and that he was going to provide atonement for sin. Because that sin problem that started in the garden continued and mankind is always looking for that way of getting rid of sin. But we're promised, and way back when in Jeremiah 31, that God would take care of the sin problem when this new covenant would be established. In Jeremiah 31, 34, it says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God's people look forward to a future time in which all people would be able to come together and have forgiveness of sin and be united as one group. And when Jesus came on the scene, he prepared the way for that to happen. 
He instituted His kingdom. He came to this earth and taught. He fulfilled the old law. He brought it to fruition. And He came and He died and He buried and He rose again from the grave. And while He was on this earth, He told His apostles, actually right after Peter makes a great confession, He tells Peter, on this rock I will build My church. And the gates of hell or the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. While Jesus was on this earth, He promised to institute and begin and start and build His church. And it was supposed to be a place of unity. It was supposed to be a place where Jew and Gentile could all come together as one body, with one mind, serving that one Lord. It wasn't, well, the Jews had their covenant, the Gentiles had theirs. It was supposed to be one people, one group, following Jesus for all eternity until He comes again. And we see the beginnings of that group in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to walk through a little bit here in Acts chapter 2 and look at the beginnings of this church. Because what Jesus did was, is right before He ascended into heaven, He told His disciples, He said, remain here in Jerusalem. I want you to wait right here because something special is going to happen. In fact, He told them that you are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and you're going to become my witnesses, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. It was promised in prophecy like in Isaiah 2, Joel 2, that when that event took place, that the church would begin and it would be a whole new opportunity now for all peoples that come to salvation. Well, that great event historically happens on a feast day called Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, all the people, the Jewish people, were gathered together there in Jerusalem celebrating this great holiday. And when that happens, you have the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples that are gathered together, and they begin to speak in different languages that they didn't have the ability to speak in before. And everybody's amazed at what is going on. Other people accuse them of being drunk because of the chaos. And in chapter 2, in verse um, 6, you find out that the people were bewildered, but Peter stands up among them in verse 14 and says, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And then he goes on and quotes Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and following, talking about that this is the fulfillment of this great prophecy. And then what Peter does to the multitudes is he preaches to them about Jesus. And he lays out the message of Jesus to him, to all the people that were gathered together. Thousands of people there are hearing this message. And the whole point of Peter's lesson is that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and He is Lord. He says, Jews, you've been waiting for Him. Here He is. Here's the opportunity now for all people, for all time to come together. And here's the proof. He lays out three proofs about Jesus. He talks about how prophecy proves that Jesus is the Messiah, that His miracles prove that Jesus is the Messiah, and that finally His resurrection proves that He is the Messiah. If you look at verse 29 of Acts chapter 2, It says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and he's in his tomb to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead 
of the resurrection and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So Peter lays it out there. He says, this Jesus, he was prophesied about. Miracles prove that he's the Messiah. And when even when he died, he left the tomb and resurrected. But then Peter gets, gets pointed with his lesson. He lays it down on them at the end, though, in verse 36. He says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made both him, Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So on this great day that's supposed to be the day in which the church is coming into fruition, Peter preaches a lesson about Jesus. And he preaches a lesson that concludes with basically him calling out the audience and saying, this Jesus was the Messiah and you put him to death. Talk about a meaty lesson. Talking about, talk about a lesson that required a response, right? The people there hear this message and the message got to them. It cut them to the heart. Verse 37, it says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And sometimes you'll hear a message that just hurts. you hear a message that just connects with you. You're like, ah, I don't, I don't want to hear that, but I know it's true. They heard that message and they asked the question. They cried out to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? Right? What shall we do? We're in this situation where we know that Jesus was Lord, we know that he's the Messiah, and we know that we've killed him. What should we do, Peter? And Peter tells them, he says to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, here's your chance to change. Here's your chance to make things right. Here's your chance to start over. You people that did this, your chance now is to repent, be baptized, forgiveness of sins, Holy Spirit. And then we find out that the people did that. Now let's go on though. Verse 39, he says, For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Gentiles. It's for everyone. And Peter keeps preaching in verse 40, and then in verse 41, the people obeyed. They heard the message and they followed it. Verse 41 says, so those who received his word were baptized, and on that day were added about 3,000 souls. Now, there was a lot more than 3,000 people there in Jerusalem on Pentecost. Not everybody obeyed. In fact, only a fraction of them did. But 3,000 souls on that day made the choice to be baptized. 3,000 souls heard the message, realized their sinfulness, and wanted to do something about it. And they made a choice. And I love the fact 3,000 souls is mentioned for us by number. You know, there's some skeptics that will say that, well, how could they do that? Logistically, how could, you know, 12 disciples or so baptize 3,000 people? What's really cool about archaeology and history is it always helps support the Bible. Um, in Jerusalem, they actually have a whole trail called the the mikvah or whatever trail, basically leading up to the temple, they have multiple ceremonial baptismal pools because the Jews would ceremoniously wash themselves to be clean before going to the holy places. So he had all those empty bodies or all those bodies of water made for ceremonial washing. You can even go look at them today 
great opportunity to baptize those people. So you find 3,000 of them choose to get baptized on that day, and now for the first moment in history, you have all these different people now gathered together, not as Jews anymore, not as Gentiles anymore, but as Christians following the resurrected Lord. The church begins. And what's neat is you go on, you find out that these people lived a changed life after their conversion. It says in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They got together, learned, worshipped, grew, prayed with one another. Their lives were different now. They didn't see themselves as all these different individuals who were represented there. As you back up into Acts chapter 2, you find that there's Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, you know, Phrygians, Pamphylians, Egyptians, all these different people there. But now, they're Christians gathered together. And you find out in verse 43 that everyone is just changed. It says they're feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Remember, God empowered the apostles at that time to confirm their message with different spiritual you know, gifts that they had. He says, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. So all these different people from all different backgrounds are sharing with each other. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, Continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here you have the beginnings of the church. We fast forward to today, 2,000 years or so removed, we're sometimes different than them. We don't always live our lives like they did. We don't always teach like they did. We don't always preach the same message as they did. But I hope you share with me the, the mindset that it's always good to look back at what the first century did and say, hey, how did these early Christians follow God? What was the message that Peter preached? You know, one of the core teachings that, that we teach here in this place is the idea of always trying to go back to the Bible. We don't go back to, hopefully we don't, sometimes we do, and we're guilty of it, but go back to what some preacher said, or what some publication, or what some commentary, or what some university, or what some great reformer, or restorer, or, or anybody in, in church history said, but instead, I think at our core, what makes us unique a lot of times as a church, and I'm not saying we're the only ones that do this, but we try to go back. We try to say, okay, the church here in its infancy had, you know, although they weren't perfect in how they later did things, and we know their struggles, you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, they weren't perfect. But you know what? Here in the innocence of their infancy, you see the church in its purest form. You see people coming to Jesus, having their sins washed away, and living changed lives. If we could do that, we could be the church of the Bible. Sometimes churches don't do that. Sometimes we don't always do that. We try to be like maybe someone else. We try to model our practices after what maybe is traditionally done or what 
you know, historically has happened or what some other preacher or what some book or what some commentary or what, what some great teacher has said. And not saying that books are bad, commentaries are bad, or you shouldn't listen to what other preachers have said. But right here is the pattern for us. And you know what I do, and I hope you do too, is I look at maybe what is done in, in different places as Christianity, and sometimes it doesn't mesh with the simplicity of what I see right here. Sometimes we really make Christianity complicated, and it doesn't have to be that way. So as we look at the early church here being established, what are some lessons that we can learn from this? And maybe compare and contrast them with what we do, and maybe even what is taught out there as a whole in Christendom. What can we see here that maybe is different, that stands out? Well, first off, in verses 37 and 38, we see that conviction, belief, repentance, and baptism result here in the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. I don't fully understand how all that works. I don't fully understand how God takes away my sin and its, and its guilt. I don't fully understand what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer I don't fully understand, you know, what that gift, how it all entails, but I do know this. The people here, when they wanted to be changed, when they wanted to come to Jesus and have their sins taken care of, Peter told them that. He says, repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that that promise, according to verse 39, was not just for them. He says it's multi-generational. He says it's for you and for your offspring, you know, your children, and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord God will call to Himself. It wasn't just a one-time occasion. That promise, I think, is for us today as well. That's different than maybe what is taught in all places. I also see here that after salvation, it seems to be the assumption that you regularly gather with other Christians. The fellowship, the study, the pray, and even the communion. You know, you look at what they did here. As soon as they were saved, they got together. And they did it all the time. You have them getting together probably for more of a worship type gathering where they're studying the apostles' writings, but you also have them getting together and just being with one another. We are meant to be a people of community. The church is supposed to be that community of believers where we can come together and support one another, care for one another, worship with each other, grow, making each other stronger. It, Christianity is not just about, well, yeah, I was saved. I don't really do the whole church thing. No, the whole church thing goes hand in hand with being saved. That whole church thing is what allows us to be part of a greater body of believers that shares the same goals as us. That's what I see here in Acts chapter 2. And along with that, I also see that the early church, that the early Christians shared with each other. They didn't live these like segmented, you know, compartmentalized lives away from one another. You do your thing, I'll do my thing, we just leave each other alone. No. They knew each other. They knew the struggles that each other had. And they made sure that no one went without. You want to talk about a social safety net? You have it there in the church. You have people watching out for each other, generously taking care of one another, making sure that no one is going without. That's what the early church did. I don't see that a lot of times in Christianity. But I see a promise in Scripture that we're supposed to be people who care. I see teaching in Scripture that says, bear one another's burdens. I see teachings like this that say, make sure 
that each other's taken care of. Now, I don't think that we struggle with not helping each other in this place, but I do know that selfishness sometimes rears its head in churches, but that's not the way that it should be. And then finally, I also see here from this passage, which may seem different to what happens in a lot of places, when one is saved, I read here that God adds you to his church. Look at verse 47 of Acts chapter 2. It says, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those that were being saved. That's why I don't like the whole join a church terminology. Because when you are saved, it says here when these people were, were baptized in the Jesus Christ, those 3,000 souls, they were added by God to his church. Now I know that it, depending on different places you go, you might hear someone say, well, to join the church here, you have to do this. I remember my grandmother one time being a part of a religious group, and she was kind of um, explaining to me how to join it, she had to go through some certain classes and do these certain things. What I see here is that when you're saved, God adds you to his church. Now, the challenge of that is this. Back then, you had one body of people serving Jesus. Now we got a whole bunch of different groups out there. So it makes it kind of complicated. But I do believe that when you are saved, God adds you universally to his church. But being part of the universal church of our Lord also, I think, requires you know, local congregational participation. You have churches in Ephesus here in Scripture. The book of Ephesians was written to him. You have churches in you know, Thessalonica. The book of Thessalonians was written to him. Churches in Corinth. Obviously, there's different groups meeting in different places where they can have their small, close community of believers where they care for one another. But you don't just join a church. God adds you to his church. And it's so much deeper than that because if you go with the mindset of, of you join a church, you kind of get that whole church shopping, what, what is the best one for me kind of thing as opposed to, hey, what is the church that God added me to? What is the greater body that I'm a part of? Now, on, on a practical level, just because people are going to be like, well, what about this? I do know that from a logistical you know, standpoint, you need to know who's part of a local congregation. We have a church directory here, and we ask you, hey, can we put your name in it? Because we want to know who should we expect here and who should we think are just passing through. That, there's practicality of that. For the elders here, the shepherd, the flock, they need to know who their sheep are. I mean, that, that's common sense. But... We don't ask you to join our church. We believe that if Jesus added you to the church, you're already part of it. You just might need to, you know, say, hey, this is my home base from now on. But when I look at the lessons here in Acts chapter 2, I find that in some places it's a lot like the churches I see today, but in other times I see that it's not necessarily the same. Not everybody teaches the same thing about conviction, repentance, confession, or, or in baptism. Not everybody talks about fellowship and worship the same way. Not everybody talks about caring for one another the same way. But we can be an undivided church like they were if we follow the teachings of the Bible and try to emulate the pattern here. Now, Christians aren't perfect. We're not perfect. We're never going to perfectly follow Scripture. But if with the right attitude and a humble heart, we go to the Bible and say, hey, what did they do? Why did they do it? I think it's possible, even today, for us to have more unity in Christianity. The teaching's there. The example is there. But it just takes us digging in, 
willing to challenge our own you know, assumptions, willing to challenge our own teachings and traditions, and also be willing to evaluate and discuss the teachings and practices of even other, other groups. Not in a judgmental, self-righteous way, but in a way to say, hey, what does the Bible teach? What is true? And what is false? I hope that helps you this morning to be strong. To say, you know what? I know there's some different teachings on these different subjects, but it's pretty clear here what they did. And I think when we start to see how the early church functions, it can strengthen our faith so that we can be strong in our faith and be strong in our faith to teach it to others. Lesson is yours this morning. We are going to sing an invitation song now. If you heard this lesson here and you are like the people in the audience of Acts chapter 2 and you want to come to Jesus, hey, you can repent of sins. You can come believing. We can baptize you into Jesus Christ today. If you want to study more, if you need the prayers of this church, one of the elders will be up here to talk with you. But understand that you don't have to just respond publicly during a church service. I have a cell phone that's with me all the time. Our elders here have their phones with them. The members here love and care for you and want to help you follow Jesus. If there's any way that we can help you, let us know. And you can also let us know now as together we stand and as we sing.